This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, reader. I'm Cindy Burnett. Welcome to my award-winning podcast, Thoughts from a Page, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. On the show, I chat with authors whose books I have enjoyed about their new releases, and I give you a peek behind the curtain of the publishing industry with my Behind the Scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. If you're looking for a community of readers, bonus content, and a chance to read books before they hit the shelves, I hope you'll consider joining my Patreon group, which is filled with a wonderful bunch of book lovers. The link to join is in the show notes. Do you love to be in the know about upcoming books? Kelly Hooker of At Kelly Hook Reads Books and I do too. We couldn't find a comprehensive list of titles all in one place, so we made one ourselves, and now we're sharing it with you. Our literary lookbook is a list of 182 books releasing from January to May 2024, curated for our communities. The link to buy it is in my show notes. December is a quiet publishing month, so I am taking this time to release some fun episodes that are a little different from my usual fare. 2023 was a banner publishing year, and I interviewed so many wonderful authors about their books. For this episode, I reminisce about some of my favorite author interviews, followed by a clip from that episode. I had a really hard time choosing who to highlight because I had the honor of talking with so many talented people this year, but I decided to focus on conversations that really resonated with me. Before each clip, I introduce the author and include when the original interview ran, as well as placing a link to each episode in my show notes. You can go back and catch the entire show if you missed it the first time around, or if this little blurb reminds you how much you enjoyed the interview when you listened to it originally, you can go back and catch it again. I loved revisiting each of these conversations, and I hope you will have the same experience as well. This is the last episode of 2023 for me, and I look forward to returning in 2024. Have a fabulous holiday. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one -on -one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. 
The first interview is with Amanda Peters, author of The Berry Pickers. The full interview ran on November 17th. The Berry Pickers is one of my top reads of the year, and I just recently highlighted it in my Best of 2023 episode with Kelly Hooker. In this clip, Amanda explains how she decided who would narrate the story and the manner in which she wove the narrations together. How did you decide that Joe and Norma would narrate the story? I didn't actually. Well, I did on Joe. So I wanted to be a first person uh, narrator because I feel like when you have a first person, there's a more um, relationship with the character. Like it's like they're sitting around the fire telling you the story. So I knew I wanted to be first person and I knew I wanted Joe's story. But Norma's story wasn't originally in my head at the very beginning. It was just Joe telling the story of what happened to him. And then I was working on it, working on it. And it just there was a little voice, I, I say, in my head saying, I want to tell my own story. I, I have a story to tell, too. So then I was like, OK, I guess I guess Norma uh, slash Ruthie has a story to tell. And so I just started writing hers, too. But I did find it somewhat difficult at first because I wanted to ensure that they had separate and equally um, important voices in the story. So what I ended up doing was I wrote most of Joe's chapters first, and then I wrote Ruthie's or Norma's chapters, and I put them together at the end. So I think that really worked in helping uh, delineate the voices because I was completely in Joe's head, and then I left Joe, and then I went completely into Norma's head and wrote her. So I think it worked well. It definitely did. And I was curious how you did that, because I do think it can be difficult when you have multiple points of view to make sure you stay true to the one that you're writing at the right time. Exactly. So that's why I kind of did all of Joe first so that I could just get him out of my head and get his story told and then did Norma and then piece them together in the end. And both of them have such compelling tales. I kept going back and forth thinking, okay, these poor people, but Joe just feeling so responsible for Ruthie disappearing, even though he was young, six. I mean, Mm -hmm. he couldn't have done anything, but the fact that he carried it with him always... Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think when you have close family ties like that, and perhaps like he lives his whole life with guilt that he puts on himself, no one else thinks he's responsible, but he just takes this on. Um, When you have a loving family and one goes missing or one passes, I think somebody would feel responsible for her being four years old and him being the last person to see her. He just carries that guilt and it occasionally turns into anger uh, and he becomes a very dysfunctional person because of it. Absolutely. And they were so close and spent a lot of time together. So I think that also contributed. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And then poor Norma. Can you imagine you feel like you have these memories that people are telling you are dreams and all of these things are happening to you and you just can't quite feel settled Mm -hmm. and then eventually realize, okay, this is why? Yeah. um, So it's kind of interesting when I was writing that. I did a little bit of research. I was like, when do children actually form concrete memories. So um, apparently it happens when you're six or seven, but you always have these flashes, right? Of, of before that time, like I have flat, just tiny little microcosm of memories, I think that flash. And I think it was easy to convince her of that because she was so young that all, all those things were dreams and they, they weren't real. But she, I think she kind of knew deep down that they were real. Yes, especially when people would comment on her skin tone Mm -hmm. or various things like that. She would think, okay, something's not right here. Yeah, and she always figured, like, she figured out through her biology class that her earlobes weren't the same as her parents, and those are genetic anomalies. So, yeah, I think, yeah, she, she, I think she wanted so much for them to love her and and to be part of this loving family that she just kind of let some of these clues bypass her. 
oh, don't you think we all do that? There are times when you think something doesn't seem right here, but I really want it to be okay. So you ignore those things that are kind of poking at you. Yes. And when you have somebody reinforcing that constantly, then I think it, it, it just led to her believing it. Was it hard to write from her point of view? I don't think so. It wasn't hard. I think I see a little bit of myself in Norma, just my issues because I am of Mi'kmaq and settler. My mom is not Mi'kmaq. And I, I struggle sometimes with my identity of where I'm supposed to fit in into this world. So I, I kind of sympathized and empathized, was a little bit Norma when I was writing it. Um, so I, I, I have a great love for her and I have a great respect for the battles she fought. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, that's interesting that it maybe made it a little easier to write her because you could write from your personal experience. Yeah. And there's, like they say, there's nothing truer than fiction because everybody can relate to something in a fictional, in a fictional work usually. And I related strongly to, to Norma's sense of, I don't know if I belong where I am. Where is it that I do belong? Yeah. Yeah. Where is it? And then the search for it. The next conversation is with Hugh Howie, author of Wool and the two subsequent books in the trilogy. The full interview ran on October 6th. After watching Silo this year on Apple TV and loving it, I went back and read Wool and hope to read the two remaining books soon. In this clip, Hugh discusses his unique and extraordinary publishing journey for this series. So you self-published all three of them. And then what happened next? How did Mariner pick them up? That's, uh, if you're into publishing, this is a really interesting story. I was doing well enough that there was no publishing deal that enticed me. I was, you know, came up to New York and was serenaded by all the major publishers and they, they put their best offers on the table. And I would show up at meetings with my laptop and show them what my, my monthly sales were. And there was just no way they could compete with what I was earning on my own. Cause you make a fraction with the publishers that you can on your, uh, if, if you're having success, you can make 70% on your own and you make maybe you know, less than 15% with a publisher. So you have to ask them, you know, how are they going to guarantee a a five to six times sales rate to justify going with them? And what we kept saying is we're looking for a print partner so we can have a big distribution push in bookstores, get into airports and, and other things like that. So let's do a print only deal that I'll keep all the digital rights and no one was interested. Um, they were willing to pay seven figures for all the rights and they weren't willing to take the print rights for free, which let me know how they valued the digital rights and that I was correct in, in valuing them so highly myself. So we rejected offers in, into the seven figures, um, which got a lot of press at the time. And meanwhile, Simon & Schuster finally came back after three rounds of turning deals down, finally came back and said, we'll do a print only deal. And part of our stipulation was, and I have one of the best agents in the business, that's why I get away with all this insanity. One of the stipulations was that we get the rights back after five years completely. It doesn't matter how well the book is selling. And so they did this deal. They were willing to, to make some money instead of letting me keep it all. And when we got the rights back, I was going to self-publish again, but we went back out to publishers. And again, we got a really good deal, this time for the whole trilogy with uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And... This is five years after my first deal and six or so years after the books have all been published. And now we're out getting seven-figure deals again and again, getting the rights back after five years. And that's, that's where we are now. HarperCollins has bought 
HMH. So I'm now with HarperCollins. I don't think HarperCollins will be willing to do the kind of deal that would require keeping me. So in the next four or five years, I'll get the rights back and and self-publish again. And yeah, this is how I think authors should be operating. It's how we operate overseas. I don't know why we can't get the same treatment in the U.S. that we get in foreign markets. Next up is my interview with Alice Hoffman about The Invisible Hour. The full interview ran on August 16th. Interviewing Alice Hoffman was certainly a standout event for me this year, and I enjoyed her focus on mother-daughter relationships in The Invisible Hour. In this clip, she explains why that particular relationship intrigues her so much. The other thing that was very interesting to me, because I have three children, two of which are daughters, was the mother-daughter relationships. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, I write a lot about that. And I think, you know, partially it's my own relationship and trying to kind of understand that. It's such a complicated relationship. And, um, you know, sometimes I think as a parent, you think you're doing the right thing and it turns out to be all wrong. Or you think you're doing the wrong thing and it turns out to be all right. It's just very complicated. And I think my character, Mia, doesn't understand her mother because she doesn't understand how her mother grew up. I mean, I always think you can't really know your parent because you didn't know them when they were young. And people are just so different. And their experiences are so different. And not just in terms of their family experiences, but in terms of the generational times, technology or lack of it when my mother was growing up and just what it was like during that time period versus during our time period. Yeah. You know, I, I, I in this letter, which is not going to be in the book, but it is in the galley that I write about my mother. She was a social worker and I used to help her pick up babies and take them to foster care. And it was traumatic, I have to say. It was really difficult. You know, it was a it was a very traumatic thing. My mother was very liberal and always felt like, you know, people should be able to make their own choices. I think she was a really good social worker because of that, because she didn't want to force her opinion on anyone. But anyway, it was traumatic for me as like a 12 and 13 year old to be picking up these babies. Absolutely. And then to understand what you were having to do with them and then hope that they're going to have okay futures, but probably never know. Right, exactly. In this clip, I chat with Pip Williams about the bookbinder. The full interview ran on July 28th. With my love of books and reading, this historical fiction gem was the perfect read for me. Pip and I discuss how she came up with the idea for the book and its relevance still today. Well, how did you learn about these women at the Oxford University Press and then decide to write about them? Yeah, so again, because I was I was in Oxford when I got the idea for the book, because I was I was I've been to Oxford a number of times now to do research for the two books. And when I was in Oxford in 2019 doing the last bit of research really for the first book, the Dictionary of Lost Words, I was in the archives. I wanted to know a little bit more about the women who bound the books because there's a scene in the first book where a book is being bound. And so I asked the archivist for anything that he had that could tell me a little bit about the work that they did, the lives that they lived, all that sort of thing. And he brought all sorts of materials up to me, but really there was very little. There were a few photographs of women in the bindery folding the large sheets of paper that come off the press. And there was a beautiful black and white film that actually any of your listeners can look up online. I think it's on YouTube. It's called The Making of a Book at Oxford University Press, something like that. It was actually made in the 1920s. So it's quite um, close to the time that I was interested in. 
it's a black and white film, you know, with no, it's got like a music, uh, a soundtrack on, on the background, beautiful black and white film. And it goes through every single process of making a book. And most of those processes are done by men, except for the folding of the pages and the gathering of the sections. And in this film, I saw a woman beautifully dressed, actually. She's even wearing slightly high heels. And she's she's moving along what's called the gathering bench. And the gathering bench was loaded up with sections from a book. And she moves along these sections and, and pulls them onto her arm until she's got an entire book. And the way she did it was so beautiful. She was almost dancing along this gathering bench. And I was so struck and taken by the image. But the first thing that popped into my head when I saw it was I wonder if she ever stops to read what she's gathering into her arms. And I realized that because of the work she was doing, there would be this imperative to do it as fast as possible. And if she did stop to read, a supervisor would come along and tell her that her job is not to read the words, but to bind them. And this is where I got the idea for the bookbinder. I suddenly had a character. I suddenly had a motivation for this character. And I had all sorts of obstacles, her her gender, her class, the kind of job that she's doing. There were so many reasons why she wouldn't be allowed to read, even though that's all she wants to do. I thought that was such an interesting part of the story. Because as a reader and a lover of words, it would be so hard for me to do that job without constantly wanting to read what was on the page. Yeah. And that's exactly why I had that thought because, you know, there I was in the archives reading as much as I possibly could. And suddenly I had a real, an image of a real person doing her job in real time. And, and I suddenly knew that this woman who in fact was in exactly the same place I was at that time, but at a different time in history. And I've only just thought of that. Cindy, you know, it's kind of made me <laughs> feel a little bit emotional, actually. It's the first time I've thought of it. I was in the same place that that woman was when that film was taken, but a hundred years later, and I was allowed to be reading all of those words that she might have wanted to read because things have changed. And of course, I say that because things have changed for women like me, but things haven't changed for many women, which I think is also why the idea of a woman being denied access to knowledge was still, I suppose, so intriguing to me because, in fact, for some women that hasn't changed. If we think of women in Afghanistan as the the most extreme example, you know, women and girls in Afghanistan still can't go to university or school at the moment. And so there are women around the world and even in our own wealthy countries you know, women whose circumstances mean that they haven't got access to education, particularly tertiary education. And so some of the things that I was exploring in the book are current for a lot of people. But yeah, at the time, I just tried to imagine myself in that woman's shoes, her beautiful high-heeled shoes. <laughs> and, and I wondered how I would feel if I was told my job was to bind the books but not read them. Next up is my interview with Elizabeth Passarella about It Was an Ugly Couch Anyway. The full interview ran on July 25th. Chatting with Elizabeth is always a delight. In this blurb, we discuss how she came to narrate her second memoir and how she prepared to do so.
Well, Elizabeth, I'd love to talk a little bit about you getting to narrate the audiobook because I was thrilled to pieces that you were narrating it. But how did that happen? It was thrilling for me too. And we, um, when when Good Apple came out, there were a couple of things happening. Number one, it was the beginning of the pandemic or the first year of the pandemic. And so recording studios and things like that in New York were closed. So there wasn't logistically much of an opportunity. But also my publisher was really honest with me and just said, listen, if you do not have a voice that's either recognizable because you're a celebrity, you know, you're Matthew McConaughey reading your own book, or you're a podcaster, someone like Laura Tremaine, for example, who people recognize her voice, she has a popular podcast. And so reading her own book makes perfect sense. They said it can really backfire if you, if, if readers can sometimes be turned off by your voice if you don't do a great job. And I think they're absolutely right. I don't listen to a ton of audiobooks, but I completely understand how that happens. And so because of the logistical challenges and that, we had a professional narrator read Good Apple. I did get to pick who it was. They gave me several choices. I wanted someone with a Southern accent because I'm from Memphis, but I certainly do not have a heavy Southern accent or much of a twang. So I was really picky about that. But the person who did it did a beautiful job and, and I loved how it turned out. But I did still secretly really want to read my own book. And I think with fiction, obviously, that's not the case. But with nonfiction, most people... I would say the majority of of essay and memoir writers do read their own work. And this book felt so personal and was written at such a difficult and personal time in my life. And I really did want to want to read it. And so they just said, yes, I did have to turn in a little clip of me reading, um, you know, a few pages just for them to get an idea. But they said yes. And we booked a studio in the city. It was, like I said at the beginning, I listened to a lot of different clips from different writers reading their own work just to get a sense of how people sounded. And what I kept telling myself over and over again was, oh my gosh, these people are talking so slowly. (laughs) And it was really hard for me to think about that because listen, everybody listening to this podcast is probably listening to it at 1.5. Everyone does that. I do that. People listen to it at, at two times the speed. So I knew that in addition to the fact that I'm a fast talker anyway, anyway, people were also going to be listening at a, a higher speed. So I really worked so hard to talk slowly. And that was really difficult for me. But I enjoyed the book narration so much. I think other writers had told me it was really exhausting and really hard. And I did not find it hard and exhausting. I found it completely delightful. I was in a tiny soundproof booth with this wonderful sound engineer, this young man outside who I'm sure knows more about my life and my like, you know, I don't even know, my marriage, all the different things than he ever wanted to. But I really enjoyed it. And what I loved most about it was I kind of fell in love with my own book again, which by the time you get to reading the audiobook, it's been a while, you've probably finished the editing, you're in that sort of dead zone where you're starting to rev up the marketing, but it's not pub day yet. And so I hadn't read it in a long time. And getting to read through it very slowly and getting to have those emotions all over again helped me fall back in love with it at just the right time, right before I had to set out on the road and kind of promote it. So I love that aspect of it too. When you're mentioning having to talk slow, I'm trying to remember what speed I listened to the audiobook at. I'm going to have to try to go back and look and see if it saves it by audiobook. And I don't listen to that many audiobooks, so it probably will be there. But I'm like, I wonder how much I sped her up because you do talk fast, as do I. So I'm curious about that now. And here's one thing that I loved. I will give you a little behind the scenes look at audio narration, which I, maybe everybody knows this, but I did not. There were several uh, famous names, either people or places or something that I had written 
But as you're writing, you're not always saying those words out loud, even in, in real life or in your head. And for example, I talk in the chapter where I talk about working at different magazines, I talk about working at Vogue, and I mention that Ruth, and see, I'm not, and right now my mind's going to go blank and I'm going to think, oh, is it Reichel or Reichel? I think it's Reichel. I think it's Reichel too. But I think in my mind, I had always said Reichel when I was thinking of her name. And so as I got to that part in the, as I'm reading off of the iPad in the sound booth, I thought, oh no, I don't want to say this wrong. And so I sort of alert the sound engineer and he goes, oh, hold on one second. And he immediately through the headphones that I've already got on starts playing me clip after clip of either her saying her own name, like at a, on a podcast, or uh, somebody introducing her at the 92nd Street Y, and they say, welcome, Ruth Reichel. And so you get these actual real-time recordings of someone saying that person's name correctly so that you have the pronunciation correct. And we did that several times for several different things in the book. And I thought that was so cool, and I loved it. So that was really helpful. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. In this next conversation, Bruce Borges and I discuss his book, The Bitter Past, another top read of mine for 2023. The full interview ran on July 18th. The sequel will be out in July, and I am eagerly anticipating it. In this blurb, we talk about how he decided to write about the nuclear testing site in Nevada and its impact on the people in places nearby, as well as how it supplied a great setting for a mystery. So you talked a little bit about the story. How did you come up with the specifics. It sounds like you had the ideas percolating, but how did you decide to put all of this into the book? Yeah, it's a great question. So I grew up in Las Vegas for the most part, which is about 70 miles south of what used to be called the Nevada Test Site and which is now the Nevada National Security Site. And while this was after the government had moved all of the nuclear testing underground, the history of what went on there for decades always intrigued me. Those of us who live in the Southwest have heard the stories of how those above-ground tests sent huge clouds of radiation toward Utah for the most part, and how people and livestock were exposed. The downwinders is, is the name that we, we've given to that group of people. And that moved me as well. I have relatives who worked out at the site, friends who can recount, if you believe this, how their father would drive them out into the desert where they would stand on sand dunes and wait for the blast wave to knock them over. 
They thought that was fun. <laughs> Hindsight, you know? Yeah. And you, you think about the time in our history, not that long ago when people were digging fallout shelters in their backyards and kids in school were participating in what they called duck and cover drills and hiding under their desks as if that was actually going to help them survive a nuclear attack. I mean, the, the whole era was absolutely bananas. Think about it now. But to the people back then, it was very serious. So I wanted to write about the time, but I didn't want to write just a historic account. There's a plethora of nonfiction books on the subject. I wanted to propose something new, something that could have happened, and something that would tie that time to the era we live in now. And that's kind of how I came up with Porter Beck and the murder mystery. This next conversation is with Rory Carroll, author of There Will Be Fire. The full interview ran on April 16th. This nonfiction book is a page turner and one I could not put down once I started it. In this portion of the interview, we talk about the religious divisions in Ireland and how religion is a signifier of the underlying issues that have existed for hundreds of years. The part that's always really hard for me to understand in this conflict is the religious aspects of it. Because living in the U.S., you know, the Catholic versus Protestant, to me, those religions are so similar. They have the basic same beliefs. The idea that you can only go to a bakery that's Protestant or a dry cleaners that's Protestant or that a city would be divided in communities based on those two religions is so foreign to me. Yes, it's, I mean, the religion was more like a political cultural signifier. So there's, there was nothing really theological about the, the conflict. It wasn't that, oh, Protestants don't believe Mary was a virgin and so on. It was, it was more that in the north of Ireland, Protestants tend to have a British identity and would rather be ruled you know, under a British, under the Union Jack, whereas Catholics tend to have an Irish identity and would rather be ruled under a tricolor. And so, you know, religion was just more like a shorthand way of, of, of tribal identification. Now, fortunately, now, nowadays, that has, I mean, Ireland, North and South has become much, much more secular. And so religion, you know, the churches are mostly empty on, on, on Sundays. So, you know, religion has become in itself far less important, but it does to this day remain as a real signifier in Northern Ireland between, you know, whether you're pro kind of staying within the union with the United Kingdom, like basically staying British, or if you're Catholic, then the likelihood is you might prefer, you know, being uniting with the rest of Ireland. And I think that's something that you really hammered home well in your book, because sometimes I think that the conflict between the two religions is what gets brought over here and people view it that way versus understanding that it really doesn't have to do with religion, as you were just describing, but instead has to do with how everything came about which again was why it was very helpful that you laid all of that out at the beginning. Yes, and also there's so many contradictions. I mean, for example, the fact that they, the IRA, during this plot, they teamed up with Whitey Bulger, of all people, and the Boston mob, and to show that the IRA were, you know, they're very pragmatic, um, you could say mercenary, in terms of just trying to get money, arms, weapons, help from anyone and any source, including Muammar Gaddafi, the Libyan dictator. and so. You know, their, their, their main ideology or, or, or religion, if you like, was winning. That's what mattered to them. And, you know, setting aside the religious side, it's, you know, at one point, it's once the bomb happened, the story turns into a version of cops and robbers, except in this case, it's cops and terrorists or cops and paramilitaries. And it's almost like a true crime police procedural. 
and were then you know a lot of the the perspective shifts towards the police um, who were then hunting the bombers and tasked with it trying to identify them and then we enter the world of this of 1980s policing pre-digital world and so all of these threads so the you know the religious conflict the fact that the roots of the conflict in, in Northern Ireland will go back not a, just a century go back a millennia to the 11th century you know but then at the same time we're seeing the aftermath of the Brighton bombing through the eyes of say the fingerprint police or the surveillance detectives who are tasked with shadowing IRA members and so forth. So, I mean, the, 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 the book tries to kind of thread all this in a hopefully kind of fluid, lean way, you know, because, I, you know, I really wanted to not, want, not get bogged down, mired, you know, in, in, in too much detail. I mean, just enough for the reader to understand, you know, the stakes and the, the history, but at the same time to want to know what happens next and to care about these characters. I mean, for instance, Jack Reese, this provincial detective in Sussex, which is the county surrounding Brighton, who ended up be- being the lead policeman on this. He was the one who had to lead the investigation. There was no British equivalent of the FBI. It was actually you know, the equivalent of, say, a, a cop in Portland, Oregon, detective there who was leading the biggest manhunt for somebody who tried to take out the, the government. And he was a, a detective was on the eve of retirement when the bomb happened. And he has kind of, this is his one last case. It's like something out of a, you know, out of a movie, really. And yet it was, it's true. And so, you know, I would hope that the readers would, you know, they see things through his eyes and why it mattered to him. Likewise, you're seeing things through the eyes of the fugitive of Patrick McGee, who's now on the run, who is actually plotting a new campaign. Um, and he's planning to return to Britain to launch an, an, another fresh IRA campaign in England. So the stakes were really high, and what I really wanted was the readers to to see things through the eyes of these characters and to empathize and, you know, to some extent even sympathize with, with some of the characters. And one thing I'd be fascinated to see is how people react to to different characters. I mean, do they sympathize with with McGee, with the with the you know, with the bomber at some points or or not? I mean, I'd, I'd be fascinated to see that. In this next clip, I chat with Rachel Beanland about The House is on Fire. The full interview ran on April 4th. In The House is on Fire, Rachel creates an incredibly strong sense of place and time. Here we discuss how she included such vivid depictions of the fire itself, as well as how it felt to actually be in the theater as it burned. One of the things I loved about the book was how vivid the fire was in terms of how well you brought it to life. Like, I felt like I was there. And when the women are trying to escape and they're being dropped down out the window and all of that, was it really hard to bring all of that to the page? Or was that just part of your writing? You know, I will admit that I have a writer friend who used to serve in a fire department. During the pandemic, you know, I was writing the early pages of this book. His name is Matt Crickio. And this was back when no one was vaccinated. And so it was, I had two, two writer friends and I would get together on my patio. We had a little heat lamp and we would sit six feet apart from one another, kind of triangulated. And we would read these early pages and I was reading their work. And, you know, we were kind of do, doing a mini, mini workshop. And he was basically the only human I, I was seeing, you know, outside of my family. And I can remember sitting out on my patio and us looking at my, I, I live in a row home in, in Richmond. And 
looking at the distance between floors and, you know, him saying, okay, this is the way it would have worked. Cause we knew in the, in the historical record, you know, Gilbert had caught these women from, you know, that someone was passing them to him. This Dr. McGaw was, Dr. McCaw was passing women to him from an upstairs window in the record. It doesn't differentiate whether it's the third floor or the second floor, but, but Matt was great about saying, you know, no, it would have been the second, it would have been done like this, you know, you couldn't have thrown them this way or else this would have happened. So we did have some fun kind of hammering, you know, down the the nuts and bolts there. But, you know, I was also like watching YouTube videos and all those things that novelists do to try to get something right. Um, so I'm, I'm glad it feels right. And the stairs collapsing and the claustrophobic feeling of everybody rushing and people falling and getting trampled. I just was like, I feel like I am right here. Yeah. And I mean, the, the other thing that it is exceptionally lucky for me, you know, writing this book was that there is such a good historical record from which to draw from. So, you know, the fire, I really kind of can't emphasize this enough that, you know, yes, it happened in Richmond, but remember the United States was much smaller at that time and and Virginia was much more kind of a central part of the United States. Not to say that, that we're not a very central part now, but you know what I mean? So when the fire happened, it was covered widely, even for that time. You know, you think, okay, we didn't have telephones. We didn't have fax machines. We didn't have cell phones. Like how did word spread? It spread quickly via letters. You know, there were so many people who were affected. So it was covered in newspapers in, you know, Boston, New York, London, Philadelphia, you know, all the major cities up and down the Eastern seaboard were covering the fire. And um, there were also a lot of memorial services held even in other cities, in other towns in Virginia, to help the families that lived locally, you know, grieve whoever it was that they had lost in the fire. And those memorial services were often the, the, you know, the, they were written down and you could kind of walk away with like a a souvenir. (laughs) And then, printers started to print all of the investigative findings, the newspaper articles, the sermons in these books that people bought to have these commemorative, you know, items they could keep for about the fire. So that's all to say that there actually is a great deal of documentation about this fire despite the fact that now if you just asked 10 people in New York City, you know, have you ever heard of the Richmond Theater Fire? All 10 of them would say no, right? The next conversation is with Shelley Reed, author of Go is a River. This is another one of my top reads of 2023. The full interview ran on February 28th. In this blurb, we discuss her love of and connection to Colorado and the concept of one's home as well as how she approached writing Wilson's character. The other thing that I wanted to chat about was that the events that you describe about the town of Iola and how it was submerged to create a dam really happened. It's so sad to think about a hometown being destroyed in that manner. And I love this sentence from your prologue. If this makes you wonder whether the joys and pains of a place wash away as the floodwaters rise and swallow, I can tell you they do not. And I think that really ties in with it. You were just talking about a fifth generation Colorado and hometown 
you know, that sense of place and tied to a land. And I just, so many sentences in your book are highlighted for me and I love them. But I thought that one really made me think. And I'd like to talk a little bit about Iola and what happened. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I've spent most of my life in the Gunnison Valley. I, I didn't grow up here, but I had family here. And then just, and I loved it. It's just been my favorite place in the world my entire life. And so as soon as I was able to choose where I wanted to live, when I went to college, I spent summers here and then I got a job teaching at Western Colorado University, fresh out of grad school. And I've been here ever since. So that's 30 plus years, 30, I don't know, 33 years or so. And ever since I was a child, I knew that there was a town beneath Blue Mesa Reservoir. There are three towns actually under Blue Mesa Reservoir, but Iola was the one that really captured my imagination. And Blue Mesa Reservoir is the largest reservoir in Colorado. And it's where everybody in my valley goes to swim and fish and boat. And I think that it's very easy to to recreate and to play in the in Blue Mesa Reservoir without asking, you know, what's the story here? The, it, generations of ranchers and farmers who had really had a love, a deep love and connection to that land were displaced in order for that reservoir to be built. And so I, I just always was very compelled by what's the story here. So, you know, I did my research. I, I looked more deeply into the town of Iola, what life was like there, what were the circumstances of the evacuation of the people and the drowning of the town. And in doing that research, I just, it was so moving to me, all that the people had lost. But then, of course, I could not write a book about displacement in the American West and displacement in the Gunnison River Valley without also acknowledging that previous to the white settlers and farmers and ranchers that deeply connected and loved that land, the indigenous population of what is the Gunnison Valley were the Ute people who were so violently displaced from that exact land previous to the white settlers. And so there's layers and layers of painful history around displacement in the area where the town of Iola once stood, all underneath Blue Mesa Reservoir now, all in the name of quote-unquote progress. And I thought that those themes were really were really rich to, to investigate. And thus, the character of Wilson Moon was born. And we can talk about Will. But I Will, for me, was a character that I I developed very, very carefully because whereas I wanted the indigenous experience to be represented in my book, I also felt on some level it, Will's story was not my story to tell. And so I leave him a little bit mysterious, but I also tell his story through Victoria's lens. And I also try to create two characters, young Victoria, young Wilson Moon, who just connect with each other heart to heart, transcendent of all of the cultural biases that either one of them could have inherited about each other. And they simply don't let that inform how they feel. And I liked the contrast that Wilson did not believe that one place was different from another because of his experience and, you know, being shuttled around versus Victoria, who says, oh, gosh, like this is the greatest place ever. And it's very different than other places. And I thought that was an interesting contrast. Yeah, I tried to represent Will as sort of a, a common, tragic story of displaced people, which is that they, once they're displaced from their homeland, they never necessarily connect to a new place. 
But also the added tragedy for the character of Will is he is the character that I don't go into it too much, but it tells a story that really, really mattered to me to tell, which is the horrific practice in the 19th and 20th century of stealing indigenous children from their families and putting them in these awful, what they called Indian boarding schools, which were these horrific schools that were meant to turn indigenous children into sort of basically good little white kids. And so the backstory on Will that's only alluded to a couple times was that he was stolen from his family from the reservation, placed in one of these horrific schools, and he and he then escaped from that. So Will then becomes a character who's so who's too quote unquote white to go back to his reservation, but also too, you know, indigenous to fit into the white world. And so Will is a drifter, but a drifter with a lot of backstory and a lot of complicated cultural biases informing that. And then the racism and prejudice that informs just his existence becomes primary in the book. Whereas Victoria is very, very rooted to one place. She actually can't imagine life outside of her own homeland in Iola. And I try to set up that contrast immediately and how the displacement plays out very differently for these two characters. In this last clip, I chat with Sadiqa Johnson about The House of Eve. The full interview ran on February 10th. We discuss how she conducted her research for The House of Eve, which included conversations with family members, traveling to certain places, and reading lots of books. Well, what about your research? What all did you have to do in the way of research? So for this book, it wasn't as intense for me as writing Yellow Wife because, you know, Yellow Wife took place in the 1850s. And so I had to do a lot of digging. For this story, I spent a lot of time with family members. I I talked to my mom and I sort of jarred her memory on what it was like growing up in in North Philadelphia. And, And she grew up maybe a decade after this time, but she was able to still paint a really clear picture for me. I talked to my dad about what was hot and what was happening in Philadelphia during that time. I also went to uh, Washington, D.C., and I walked on U Street, and they have a tour where they have uh, different plaques up as you walk down U Street to talk about different moments in Black history. And I read a lot of books. I always read books that inform my writing, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, just something that's going to sort of spark me to get the story out. Did you spend time researching any of these homes for unwed mothers? Oh, my goodness. I read a book by Ann Fessler called The Girls Who Were Left Behind. Oh, my gosh. I can't think of the title, but the author's name is Ann Fessler. And she actually was phenomenal. I sent her an email and I asked questions and she got right back to me and helped me sort of sort this through. There's a lot of newspaper articles online about these homes. And they weren't just in America, surprisingly. There's a lot of um, stories about women in Canada and women in Ireland. I mean, it was a worldwide phenomena that they had these maternity homes for these women. And they started off as being a place for prostitutes and women of that sort. And then it sort of grew into this. There were homes that were specific for women who had means, you know, so that people wouldn't know what happened to them. It was like they went away on a vacation and they came back and nothing happened. But the scars were always on the inside for these women. You know, on the outside, it looked like they were able to get their lives back, but oftentimes they never, ever forgot about their children. 
It would be so difficult. Yeah. I mean, I have three kids. I can't imagine it. I agree. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, I think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. Thank you so much for joining me on this trip down memory lane today. I really enjoyed reflecting back on some of my favorite interviews in 2023, and I hope they resonate with you as well. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts From a Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. I am a listener-supported show, and your contributions really help me produce the podcast episodes. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts From a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. I hope you'll tune in in 2024 and spend some time catching up on episodes you have missed until then. Happy holidays. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not. It's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily.